beloved member, let us unite in the true method of spiritual preparation for cosmic attunement during this period of work and worship here in your holy sanctum. This is your holy of holies, and here is where the consciousness of God and the great masters dwell with you when you petition for such divine blessings. Now that you are about to begin a sacred period of study and unfoldment, let us invoke the presence of God and the heavenly hosts. God of our hearts, creator of all living beings everywhere, and father of all humankind, we beseech thy presence here and now. Welcome back to Para Power Mapping. My name's Clonny Gosh. It's Massachusetts o'clock. Time for another installment in our Historical Materia Ultima miniseries and the continuation of our mapping of the New England node of the Transatlantic and Rosicrucian Brotherhood that conspired to expand English empire and hegemony in the New World. In the previous episode, we ended with the first part of the saga of Thomas Morton, 
and a comparative religious investigation into the mythic origins of the Maypole, specifically in the Attis and Cybele Rite, which was assimilated by the Greeks when they expanded into present-day Anatolia, and the cult of which lasted into the Roman period. We also examined the imitative magic of the Maypole ritual through the symbolism in Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Maypole of Marymount and Vickery's essay The Golden Bough at Marymount. Before we round off our retelling of the saga of Thomas Morton, and return to our history of John Winthrop the Younger, I want to discuss the Addis slash Cybele Rite in a bit more detail, as well as its connections to the Eleusinian mysteries. As I posted a Twitter thread on the right after publishing the previous episode, and I've since learned a couple of new and enlightening facts. Similarly, we're going to speedily read this short, short story by the French symbolist Marcel Schwab, who influenced some personal faves of mine, such as Roberto Bolaño and Borges. The story is called The Eunuchs and it envisages life as a member of the Galli, the priests of the Attis Rite in Rome. After our brief sojourn in the Mediterranean of antiquity, we'll return to our history of Winthrop the Younger, and his pansific Rosicrucian and alchemical plantation scheme, and along the way, will take a momentary detour to Springfield, Massachusetts, to contend with the ancestry of one of our favorite, critically paranoid, military-industrial-complex-employed postmodernists, Thomas Pynchon. Yeah, we're going to trace the fur-trading monopoly of T.P.'s ancestor William Pynchon, and the Pynchon family's status as members of the Puritan elite, not to mention their close ties to the Winthrops, John Winthrop the Younger in particular. Actually, the more I think about it, the literary progeny of the colonial elite of New England are becoming quite the theme of this podcast, and a few others flit through this episode. So let's get to it, eh? You'll remember from the previous episode that after Cybele and Zeus resurrected the vegetation god Addis, he became Cybele's consort. And once Cybele was assimilated into Greek culture, she was considered the mother of the gods and partly corresponded with the grain goddess Demeter. This is logical, as Cybele, like Demeter, was also an earthly great mother goddess. The Romans referred to the quote-unquote exotic goddess with the Latin epithet magna mater, meaning great mother. Similarly, 
Demeter literally has the Greek word for mother in her name, Meter. In the Homeric hymns, Cybele is called, quote, the mother of all gods and human beings, end quote, which has been given as evidence of her correspondence with the Titaness Rhea, who was Cronus's sister and mother of the five eldest Olympians. Cybele is also called Potniotherin, meaning mistress of animals, and many votives and other representations of Cybele show her flanked by two lions or riding a lion-pulled chariot. As we already mentioned, though, Cybele's partial correspondence with Demeter seems most instructive here, as, akin to the story of Cybele and Attis, the myth of Demeter and Persephone is another allegory for the annual quote-unquote resurrection of agriculture. Allow me to quickly highlight the elements that carry over between the two myths. In the Homeric hymn to Demeter, it's implied that Zeus likely fathered Persephone with his sister Demeter. Persephone is out gathering flowers in a glade with the Oceanids, Pallas, and Artemis. Alternatively, I thought I read somewhere that Persephone was actually painting the wild flowers of the world, but I could be mistaken, or that account could be conflating myths. Okay, yeah, actually, I think that is right. Anyways, Zeus apparently marries off his daughter, Persephone, without her consent. Hades rides a chariot up out of a crevice in the earth and abducts Persephone, dragging her screaming into the underworld. If the ideological bit about Persephone painting flowers is true, then it would correlate with the ideology of violets, wherein the blood from Attis's castration bloomed into the flowers. Demeter is distraught that her only daughter has been kidnapped and raped, and she goes wandering in search for her. I'm now having a hard time finding it, but I also read something stating that there was a shepherd nearby when Persephone was abducted, and that the shepherd's pigs tumbled into the crevice out of which Hades' chariot burst forth, and that this is the source of the significance of pigs within the Eleusinian mysteries and why pork became one of the sacraments. While wandering, the distraught Demeter caused a blight to ruin all the crops across the face of the earth, and the peoples of the world began to starve. Ultimately, Helios, the sun god who sees all things, revealed to Demeter where her daughter had been taken. In turn, Zeus relented to the anguished cries of the starving masses and Demeter, and ordered that Hades release Persephone. But Hades was crafty, 
and fed Persephone pomegranate seeds, which broke the taboo that anyone who ate in the underworld was required to remain there. And so a compromise was struck, that Persephone would summer with her mother on Mount Olympus and spend the winters in the underworld, thus symbolizing the cyclical nature of agriculture and flora. Once agreed, Persephone was released to Hermes, who ferried her safely out of the underworld, returning her to her mother Demeter, and refructifying the natural world. The pomegranate seeds and the cyclical agricultural symbolism also correlates with the myth of Attis and Cybele, as you'll remember. Oh, something I forgot to mention. Zeus didn't decide to release Persephone just out of his largesse. The famine that the aggrieved Demeter had wrought had dried up all the offerings ritually given to the gods, and if humanity starved out, life would become intolerable for the Olympians. This is an interesting example of a kind of symbiosis between humanity and the gods in the Greek conception. Speaking of which, why didn't the Greeks ever use this leverage and withhold offerings to try and get the gods to do their bidding? I know, I know. That sounds like a uh, prime example of hubris. Who knows, maybe they did at some point and learned the hard way not to fuck with their capricious deities. Actually, isn't there a moment in the Odyssey where Odysseus's crew forget to make a promised offering and this brings a bunch of hardship down on them? Maybe I'm misremembering. Let's see. I did a quick search, and the main thing I'm finding is the counter-offerings between Odysseus and his crew to Zeus following their escape from the Cyclops and the Cyclops' offerings to Poseidon. Anyways, moving on. This myth gave rise to the Eleusinian Mysteries, of course, an initiatic agrarian cult whose sacraments symbolized the changing of the seasons and cycles of life and death through Persephone's descent, Demeter's search, and Persephone's eventual ascent out of the underworld. It's worth noting that there are variations on the Demeter and Persephone myth. One in particular is interesting in light of our research. In the Orphic Rhapsodic Theogony, Persephone is instead the daughter of Zeus and Rhea, further underlining the correspondence between Cybele, Rhea, and Demeter. Zeus intends to marry his mother Rhea, and is chasing after her. Zeus really was the fucking worst. Rhea, understandably unwilling, transforms into a serpent to avoid her disgusting son. Zeus does the same, and rapes his mother while in snake form. Ew. 
Rhea then transforms into Demeter, which is a curious alteration of the Demeter and Persephone myth, as it makes Demeter an embodiment of the great mother goddess. In this version, Persephone is actually a monstrous birth, and Demeter is so disgusted that she refuses to nurse her and leaves her exposed. Yet another parallel between Demeter and Persephone and Cybele and Attis. Zeus, whose rapacious sexual appetite is apparently stoked by incest and monstrosity, mates with Persephone, and Persephone in turn gives birth to Dionysus. This Orphic version is interesting as it draws connections between the cults of Attis and Cybele, the Eleusinian mysteries, and the festivals of Bacchanalia slash Dionysia, the ecstatic feast sacred to Dionysus and which involved some really sus sexual practices that maybe need no introduction. But in case you're unfamiliar, some have argued that the Bacchanalia not only involved ritual pedophilia, but in some instances even ritual cannibalism of children. We'll do a more detailed examination of Bacchanalia at a later date, probably when we examine the rakish hellfire clubs and their connections to the colonial elite of the Revolutionary War era. Returning to this variant of the Demeter and Persephone story, although the beginning of the Orphic version differs significantly, the rest of it hews more closely to the Homeric. So the Eleusinian mysteries were the initiatic and esoteric cult that sprouted out of the Demeter and Persephone myth. There was also a more mainstream feast day dedicated to the, quote, two goddesses, end quote, which was called Thesmophoria and was held in late autumn, around the time that seeds were sown prior to winter. In some instances, it may have been a harvest festival. Evidently, Thesmophoria was one of the more widely practiced, or even most widely practiced, of all the Greek festivals, and only women were involved in the ritualistic celebrations, excluding men. Even so, it appears its rites were also kept secret. Speaking of secretive rites... Examining these early forebears of later initiatic secret societies is illuminating, and will undoubtedly aid us as we explore the modern equivalents of Rosicrucianism, Freemasonry, etc. The Eleusinian mysteries specifically give us a super early example of a society in which the oath of secrecy was maintained under the threat of death, the hierophants, priestesses, and initiates were sworn to secrecy, 
and any who spilled the proverbial pomegranate seeds were killed. Which is interesting, as one of the only two preconditions of initiation was the absence of quote-unquote blood guilt, basically meaning members were required to have never murdered anyone. The other requirement was that they spoke Greek. This requirement is curious because Cicero and Athenagoras believed that the atheistic Diagoras, or Diagoras, Diagoras, I'm not sure, Um, anyways, that he was sentenced to death for revealing some of the rite's secrets in the 5th century BC. It's been hypothesized that the Eleusinian mysteries actually grew out of an older, possibly Mycenaean agrarian cult. During the greater mysteries, the initiates would enter a great hall called the Telesterion, inside of which was a secondary, sanctified inner temple. Ooh not unlike the outer and inner temples of London's Inns of Court. This temple was called the Anocturon, I think that's the pronunciation, and it's believed that it is the ruins of an older Mycenaean temple site. One of the primary secrets of the mysteries was, quote, an ear of grain in silence reaped. End quote. What this means exactly is obscure, as the esoteric meanings of the rite, as always, weren't documented. But we can take a stab in the dark. It seems most likely that, running with the larger agricultural and life cycle mythos of the mysteries, This somehow symbolized the continuation of life after death, and or the regeneration of all things. Also, I don't know about you, but the sacrificial connotations of the language of this secret sound a little sus to me. Just reading a bit from the Wikipedia here. Please, take it easy on me as I'm sure I'll mispronounce some of these Greek words. On the 19th of Bodromion, initiates entered a great hall called Telesterion. In the center stood the palace, Anacteron, built of ruins dating back to the Mycenaean Age, which only the Hierophants could enter, where sacred objects were stored. Before Mystai, I think that's how you pronounce it, could enter the Telesterion, they would recite, quote, I have fasted, I have drunk the Kaikion, I have taken from the Kiste, which is a box, I guess, and after working it, have put it back in the Colothus, or open basket. It is widely supposed that the rites inside the Telesterion comprised three elements. Oh god, I'm so I'm so sorry about my terrible Greek pronunciations. Alright. 
So the three elements were dromina, things done, or dramatic reenactments of the Demeter-Persephone myth, dichrumina, things shown, displayed sacred objects in which the hierophant played an essential role, and legomena, things said, commentaries that accompanied the sacred objects. Combined, these three elements were known as the aporhita, or unrepeatables. The penalty for divulging them was death. Athenagoras of Athens, Cicero, and other ancient writers cite that it was for this crime, among others, that Diagoras was condemned to death in Athens. The tragic playwright Aeschylus was allegedly tried for revealing secrets of the mysteries in some of his plays, but was acquitted. The ban on divulging the core ritual of the mysteries was thus absolute, which is probably why almost nothing is known about what transpired there. As to the climax of the mysteries, there are two modern theories. Some hold that the priests were the ones to reveal the visions of the holy night, consisting of a fire that represented the possibility of life after death, and various sacred objects. Others hold this explanation to be insufficient to account for the power and longevity of the mysteries, and that the experiences must have been internal and mediated by a powerful psychoactive ingredient contained in the Kaikion drink. All right, so we're going to skip over a little bit of this, um, but after that portion of the mysteries, there was an all-night feast and dancing and merriment and the latter stages of the mysteries were open to the public. Let's also quickly look at a few of the speculations surrounding the possible use of entheogenic or hallucinogenic sacraments in the rite. Again, quoting from Wikipedia. Quote, Numerous scholars have proposed that the power of the Eleusinian mysteries came from the Kaikion's functioning as an entheogen or psychedelic agent. The use of potions or filters for magical or religious purposes was relatively common in Greece and the ancient world. The initiates, sensitized by their fast and prepared by preceding ceremonies, may have been propelled by the effects of a powerful psychoactive potion into revelatory mind states with profound spiritual and intellectual ramifications. Many psychoactive agents have been proposed as the significant element of Kaikion, though without consensus or conclusive evidence. These include a species of ergot, which contains the alkaloids ergotamine, a precursor to LSD. However, modern attempts to prepare a kaikion 
using ergot per parasitized barley have yielded inconclusive results, though Alexander Shulgin and Ann Shulgin describe both ergonavine and LSA to be known to produce LSD-like effects. Discovery of fragments of ergot, fungi containing LSD-like psychedelic alkaloids, in a temple dedicated to the two Eleusinian goddesses excavated at the Mos Castellar site in Girona, Spain, provide legitimacy for this theory. Ergot fragments were found inside a vase and within the dental calculus of a 25-year-old man, providing evidence of ergot being consumed. This finding seems to support the hypothesis of ergot as an ingredient in the Eleusinian kaikion. Psychoactive mushrooms are another candidate. Scholars such as Robert Graves and Terence McKenna speculated that the mysteries were focused around a variety of psilocybe. Other entheogenic fungi, such as Amanita muscaria, have also been suggested. A recent hypothesis suggests that the ancient Egyptians cultivated psilocybe cubensis on barley and associated it with the deity Osiris. Another candidate for the psychoactive drug is an opioid derived from the poppy. The cult of the goddess Demeter may have brought the poppy from Crete to Eleusis. It is certain that opium was produced in Crete. Another theory is that the psychoactive agent in Kaikion is DMT, which occurs in many wild plants of the Mediterranean, including something called Phalaris and or Acacia. To be active orally, like in ayahuasca, it must be combined with a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, such as Syrian rue, which grows throughout the Mediterranean. End wiki quote. Okay, so the wiki also references someone who has hypothesized that the Eleusinian mysteries involved the triggering of trance states through breath control similarly to yogic samyama. Both the Eleusinian and Attis mysteries would survive into the Roman period. Let's return to the Attis and Cybele cult momentarily. In Rome, the priests of Attis were called Galli, and they ritually castrated themselves on dies sanguinis, which literally means day of blood in Latin. The cult of the Magnamater, Cybele, was assimilated in Rome sometime in the 3rd BCE, possibly in the closing stages of the Second Punic War, Rome's war against Carthage. Here's another correlation between the cult of Cybele slash Attis and the Eleusinian mysteries. Cybele was introduced into the Roman pantheon in response to various quote-unquote prodigies or ill omens. 
specifically, meteor showers, and most significantly, crop failure and famine. You'll remember from our reductive rundown of Demeter and Persephone that Persephone's release was finally sanctioned by Zeus in response to the famine that the grain goddess Demeter had loosed upon the land. So the shared agricultural correspondences between Cybele and Demeter are further reinforced by this fact. Similarly, it was hoped that the adoption of Cybele would spur the Roman soldiers on to victory over Carthage, and votive statues were ferried from her sanctuary in Anatolia to the Temple of Victory on the Palatine Hill. As we'll see in the Schwab's short story, uh, that's a tongue twister, as we'll see in the Schwab short story, the Galli were often foreigners, enslaved in the provinces and forcibly brought to Rome to serve the cult of Cybele, as it appears that castration was prohibited among Roman civilians, except under the fourth Roman emperor Claudius, but the prohibition was subsequently reenacted by Domitian. Dia Sanguinis, the sacred feast of the priests of Attis and the cult of Cybele, was celebrated. <laughs> what a celebration! On the spring equinox. The date varies because of calendar discrepancies, but generally in late March. Following two days of mourning, the priests reenacted Attis's yearly death on the Day of Blood, self-flagellating and some, although maybe not all, even castrating themselves. As previously mentioned, supposedly the priests would run around wild and disheveled, likely recreating Attis's crazed flight into the forest and would dance to music played on pipes and tambourines. It appears the flogging and self-castration would follow the dancing and racing, matching the mythic chronology. We get an account of the rites and more from the Roman Christian Firmicus Maternus, who documented a purported sacred saying of the cult, quote, I have eaten from the timbrel, I have drunk from the symbol, I am become an initiate of Addis, end quote. Granted, I'm just getting this from the Wikipedia entry. I haven't had the time to look for authoritative or primary sources on the cult, what with all the other research I've got going. But just going to point out that even the wiki on the Galli compares the rite of Attis to the Eleusinian mysteries by way of Clement of Alexandria. According to the wiki, the Galli and Archi Gallus or Archi Gallus, who was the head priest of the cult, and generally a Roman citizen, wore women's clothing, often yellow in color, turbans, pendants, 
earrings, heavy makeup, sometimes laurel wreaths or crowns, and bleached their hair, which they wore long. They evidently would wander about the city, begging for offerings for which they would tell fortunes in return. A last note on various interpretations of their gender identity, etc. Quote, Shelley Hales wrote, quote, Greek and Roman literature consistently reinforces the sexual and racial differences of eunuchs by stressing how different they look, end quote. Because the Galli castrated themselves and wore women's clothing, accessories, and makeup, some modern scholars have interpreted them as transgender. Firmicus Maternus said, quote, They say they are not men. They want to pass as women. End quote. He elaborated, quote, Animated by some sort of reverential feeling, they actually have made this element, the element of air, into a woman, Callistus, the goddess. For because air is an intermediary between sea and sky, they honor it through priests who have women, womanish voices. End quote. The Galli may also have occupied a third gender in Roman society. Jacob Latham has connected the foreign nature of Magna Mater and her priest's non-conforming gender presentation. They may have existed outside of Roman constructions of masculinity and femininity altogether, which can explain the adverse reactions of Roman male citizens against the, the Galli's transgression of gender norms. End quote. Okay, so I wanted to read this Marcel Schwab short story, The Eunuchs, in this episode, but that was before I'd mapped these intersections of William Pynchon and Thomas Pynchon and the Pynchon family, moreover, and Rosicrucianism. So there's a ton of stuff that uh, we're going to try and fit into this episode that's making it more unwieldy. So here's what I've decided. Instead of reading the Marcel Schwab story right now, I'm going to record it separately and throw it up, and then you can listen to it at your discretion and leisure. And instead, we're going to just hurry on with the rest of the research for this episode. Finally, a last and likely obvious note on the symbolism of ritual castration, galli, and maples. As we've previously established, the Eleusinian mysteries and the rites of Attis involved imitative magic and propitiative sacrifices aimed at ensuring the yearly refructification of the natural world. The word sacrifice is derived from the Latin sacrificus, the performance of priestly functions and sacrifices, and sacrificium, the things or people sacrificed. 
I think it's beyond us to speculate about the origins of sympathetic magic. Who knows how or when human beings got the idea that ritualized reenactments, sacrifices, and spells could affect the natural world and bring about the desired outcomes. But trying to imagine how people thought in Roman times, remember that Roman people existed in a world in which ritual sacrifice had been a reality for a damn long time, as shown by biblical examples and archaeological evidence to list a few. Oh, and speaking of Carthage, numerous Roman sources, such as Plutarch and Tertullian, claimed that the Phoenicians of Carthage practiced ritual child sacrifice, that they would ritually immolate conscious children on bronze idols, and archaeological evidence of this practice has been found. Mass graves of child skeletons. In fact, the ancient deity Moloch, who is referenced in the Bible and who some believe to be a Canaanite god, may have been a Phoenician export. What is certain is that devotees of Moloch practiced human sacrifice. And then there's the example of Minoan sacrificial practices, the labyrinth and minotaur and all that on ancient Crete. Taking these examples of the prevalence of ritual sacrifice in the ancient world into account, it's not hard to psychoanalyze and identify the archetypal symbolism that people believed male genitalia and plants shared. Not to get too anatomical, but both rise and fall. Plants with the seasons and dicks with the passions, kind of like the seasons of the heart. And like trees, dicks have nuts that contain the quote-unquote seed of new people slash trees. If you didn't know, now you know. <laughs> so, in a culture in which sympathetic magic and ritual sacrifices are widely believed to be efficacious, it makes sense that human beings would come to the conclusion that the ritual sacrifice of some sexual organs would ensure the fruitfulness of the rest and draw the connection between sexual organs and flora as we've already explored. Needless to say, these ancient practices are morally contemptible and horrifying, but this is about the best that I can muster at the moment as far as grappling with possible psychological origins of these uh, freaky fucked up rites.
right, now to return to the party on a hill, the historical maypole revel that sent us down this rabbit hole in the first place. We now have a deeper understanding of the underlying mythos of the maypole, and an argument for Thomas Morton's maypole at Marymount as a magical working is starting to cohere. When we think of the colonial English experience and Morton's secretive paganism, his choice to hold a May Day festival in the colony begins to take on additional meaning. We may not have talked about this aspect of the frontier experience at all yet, really, and you may already know about this, but a reminder that, especially for the Plymouth colony, and in the early years of English colonization in New England, which is around the time that Morton was living near Quincy, as he was one of the very first arrivals, the Pilgrims and Puritans were struggling with starvation, were often dependent on the generosity of local indigenous folks, and were experiencing routine crop failures. When they first arrived, the Pilgrims literally had no idea how to grow crops in New England. During the harsh winter of 1620-21, the Wampanoag literally saved the pilgrims, though not all, as some died of starvation. Forty-five of the 102 immigrants that arrived on the Mayflower perished that first winter, and the direness of the situation was illustrated by the Mayflower Compact's rhetoric about quote-unquote collective good. Speaking of which, the compact was likely written by a Brewster, a family which, IIRC, owned slaves, and was also signed by Captain Miles Standish, who would later bust up the Maypole Party. And the starvation didn't end in that first winter, as Governor Bradford's journals make apparent. Food was scarce for at least the first few years. So considering this hungry, hungry subtext, Morton's May Day Maypole appears less like secular fun and a middle finger at his pilgrim rivals, and more like a crypto-pagan bit of sympathetic magic enacted on the part of starving colonists in hopes of ensuring a bountiful harvest in the coming months. The reality is probably both and, both an excuse to have a drunken frontier rager and hell. If the sympathetic magical component of the party worked, and that summer's crop turned out to be especially bountiful, all the better. I don't know if this thought only came to me because I recently got sucked into that Showtime show Yellow Jackets about a high school women's soccer team that gets stranded in mountainous wilderness following a plane crash and end up cannibalizing each other. 
Hopefully old Clawney here is astute enough to have had this thought sans the most recent cannibalism fad. Speaking of which, cannibalism is in right now, isn't it? Wasn't there just a Timothy Chalamet movie about a gay cannibal teenage couple in like the last year or something? If not, thank you Yellow Jackets for this insight. Returning to the saga of Thomas Morton, when we last left off, Tommy had just been apprehended by the Pilgrim authorities after the after-party, and shipped back to England. We'd just discussed how the Pilgrims were operating under faulty intel, convinced that Ferdinando Gorgas was an ally, when in actuality he was seeking to undermine the Pilgrims and Puritans in hopes of establishing a royalist colony of his own. Here's something interesting. Prior to his appointment as the governor of the nascent Massachusetts Bay Colony, John Winthrop Sr. served as an attorney in the Court of Wards and Liveries in London. Moncal claims that Winthrop heard about Morton there. Quote, On November 27th, 1627, a man named William Stewart from Stratfield Turgis testified in that court that a Thomas Morton, previously residing in Swallowfield in Wiltshire, had gone into business with a man named Thomas Wiggy. But after a year or so, Stewart stated, Wiggy died. Winthrop wrote in his notes that he was, quote, supposed to be made away by the said Morton, and one Edwards who was laid in prison for it, but Morton fled, end quote. Despite the allegations, there is no evidence that Morton ever faced murder charges in England or New England, end quote. So what do we make of this? Is Governor John Winthrop Sr. relating a legitimate account of murder allegations against Morton? Or could this be Winthrop attempting to frame and or discredit Morton on behalf of his pilgrim allies, one stratagem in the larger battle over colonial dominance that was being waged between the Pilgrims, Puritans, and Sir Ferdinando Gorgas. Only God knows, methinks. Regardless of the veracity of Winthrop Sr.'s claims, and whether he'd actually heard of Morton prior to his emigration to New England, Winthrop certainly became familiar with Morton upon his arrival in the colony. Following his first exile, Morton returned to New England, beating Winthrop by some months or years, I believe, though I can't remember the chronology exactly. But what's for sure is that Morton's next run-in with the colonial authorities was in Winthrop's neck of the woods, 
Now, this account seems uncharacteristic of Morton when we compare it with his advocacy for peaceful relations with the various Ninemissinuwak tribes of New England, and his uniquely friendly relations with the tribes he cohabitated with during his multiple stints in the colonies. All the same, according to Winthrop, Morton was, quote, adjudged to be imprisoned till he were sent into England and his house burnt down for his many injuries offered to the Indians and other misdemeanors, end quote. Moncal provides more info regarding the punishment from the Massachusetts Court of Assistance, which ordered Morton shackled with a bilbo which was an old-school form of colonial justice, where the offender would be shackled to an iron bar stuck in the ground and left in public for humiliation. According to the court, Morton had supposedly stolen a canoe from a group of natives, and they ordered that all of his possessions be sold off so as to make reparations. They also burned his house down while the aggrieved natives watched. Frontier justice, man. Morton was returned to England on a ship called the Handmaid, where he would await trial on these possibly trumped-up murder accusations for a time in the Exeter jail. Morton was the very first person ever banished from the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Oh, this is also interesting. There's a conflicting account about the burning of Morton's house from Bradford, who claimed that it was actually burnt down to keep birds from roosting in it. In my mind, this discrepancy in the stories between Winthrop and Bradford hints at the possibility of some kind of collusion against their competitor, Sir Ferdinando Gorgas, and his agent. In 1631, Winthrop and the Massachusetts Bay Colony authorities exiled Morton a second time. With Morton safely ferried back to England yet again, Winthrop stooped so low as to read Thomas's mail. He literally justified opening the letters from Gorgas to Morton in his journals, giving the excuse that the letters were, quote, directed to one who was our prisoner and had declared himself an ill-willer to our government, end quote. The roots of the American surveillance state were planted right then and there. In the letters, Gorgas wrote to Morton about his claims to much of Massachusetts Bay, Even if Winthrop didn't know of the dangers Morton and Gorgas posed to his Massachusetts Bay Colony prior to this, he'd certainly figured it out after he busted the old letter knife out. Once back in England, Morton may have been imprisoned for a time, but he ultimately escaped any charges. I'm not sure if the historical record gives a complete account of what exactly happened there. And I'm sorry if this seems low effort, dear listener, but I honestly don't have the energy to wade back into Moncal's The Trials of Thomas Morton to verify right now. 
as we've got to get back to Winthrop the Younger. And I'm also anxious to finish this Rosicrucianism and Alchemy series so we can move on to Parapower Mapping, the New England nodes of the Sino-American Opium Smuggling Networks. In 1632-33, Morton has already written a version, if not the definitive edition, of his New English Canaan. As a printer named Charles Green documents how agents from the Puritan colonies were working to suppress his publication of the text. Let's talk a bit about New English Canaan and why the Puritans and Pilgrims would have wanted to suppress it, as I mentioned in Human Alchemy. New English Canaan is one part travelogue, one part natural history, one part anthropology, one part social reform utopia, and one part personal vendetta. Its primary purpose was to propagandize on behalf of Sir Ferdinando Gorgas and Morton's vision of establishing a new royalist dominion that Gorgas would rule over as absolute lord, and where the English colonists would live in relative peace with their indigenous neighbors. So of course the Puritans and pilgrims were dead set on doing everything in their power to prevent this from coming about. Let's also discuss some of these contemporaneous representations of Ninemissinuak culture that we get from folks like Morton and the Quaker Roger Williams. But first, a bit of information on Ninemissinuak society and practices by way of Moncal. Quote, the Ninemissinuak believed that the land had been formed by multiple non-human spiritual forces. Various deities still remained active, including those controlling the movement of fish and animals and others that needed to be propitiated for a successful crop. End quote. Note how the Ninemissinuak would have likely found the imitative magic involved in the Maypole Rite recognizable on a cultural and religious level. Moncal describes how the Ninemissinuak had utilized a complex system of place names to create topographical maps for hundreds of years before the English arrived. According to Moncal, and by way of colonial accounts from Edward Winslow, Roger Williams, etc., the Ninemissinuak and Algonquins had upwards of 37 different deities, some corresponding with the cardinal directions, celestial bodies, fire, the sea, etc. A criticism that I have of Moncal's book is that I'm not sure that he cites enough, if any, really, indigenous sources in the sections of the text where he's describing native cultural practices and religious beliefs in the 17th century. I'm not trying to throw stones, but don't you think it would be better to use 
more recent resources actually written by Native Americans who know the oral traditions inside and out than referring to colonial accounts that likely misunderstood indigenous society. I'm no historian. As I've said previously, I'm probably nothing more than an amateur tour guide. Perusing his notes, he does cite a handful of book-length histories and research papers on indigenous history in the lands now known as New England. I don't have the time to quality check the resources he's pulling from. So we'll just leave it at that with that one wonderment. As indigenous anthropology is outside the scope of this podcast, which is primarily, at least in the present miniseries, para-power mapping the power structures and elite class of colonial New England, I'm just going to encourage you to take this info with a grain of salt. At the same time, because the Ninimus Inuak are integral to this history, I also feel an obligation to include some basic details. Full disclosure, if you couldn't already tell, I'm a white guy, and I'm super ignorant of indigenous cultural practices and history, so I apologize for the lack of information on the indigenous inhabitants of colonial New England. If you ever catch me saying something inaccurate and or want to furnish me with better information, please feel free to email me at clawney underscore gosh at proton.me. That's K-L-O-N-N-Y underscore G-O-S-C-H at proton.me. Similarly, I would absolutely welcome an indigenous person on the show to correct the record and or cover some of the material we've been handling from their perspective. Having acknowledged my ignorance, I lastly want to reiterate that I do not abide colonialism and imperialism and clearly state that I desire to learn how to be as anti-colonial and anti-imperialist in my outlook as I can be. Although you likely have a decent idea of where I'm coming from based on the content I'm producing, it's probably a good idea for me to just explicitly reiterate my own politics on occasion. You could probably call me an aspiring Marxist that needs to read more theory, and I'd say that that's a fair assessment. Quoting again from Moncal, quote, The Ninimus Inuak claimed to meet their deities as they slept. One such figure, called Habamok, was considered a devil by the colonist Edward Winslow, among the earliest English at New Plymouth, and the author of a 1624 narrative entitled Good News from New England, a true relation of things very remarkable at the plantation of Plymouth in New England. Habamock, quote, appears in sundry forms unto them, end quote. He wrote, quote, as in the shapes of a man, a deer, a fawn, an eagle, etc., 
but most ordinarily a snake. End quote. Yet while the English saw him as evil, the Ninemissinuak understood that he was capable of curing illness and wounds. In their dreams, Habamak told them that a failed cure was the fault of Kaitan. Quote, the principal and maker of all the rest. End quote. The one who had, quote, created the heavens, earth, sea, and all creatures contained therein. End quote. No one claimed to have seen Kaitan themselves in dreams, but legends of his prowess survived in oral history, passed from one generation to another. End quote. That's the end of the quote from Moncal. That was all one quote, in case that wasn't apparent. So he also references an account from a William Bailey's, talking about the Ninemissinuak giant named Moshop or Moshop, who lived on Martha's vineyard and used whole trees that he tore from the ground for his fires and trunks as spits for whales. Supposedly, he would throw massive rocks into the bay so that he could walk onto the water to fish. And this was the native ideology of how the topography of Gay Head on the western edge of the vineyard came to be. Another story states that the local indigenous once offered Moship all of the tobacco on the vineyard as a propitiatory offering. Eventually, Moship fled New England after growing alarmed by the spread of Christianity on the islands. A few notes on archaeological evidence of aspects of pre-colonial and colonial Ninemissinuak society. The ingenuity of the Ninemissinuak is demonstrated by their practice of submerging their canoes underwater so as to prevent them from cracking during the cold of the winter. Moncal claims the cultivation of maize took hold around 1300 CE, where in the wrist joints of women's skeletons indicates participation in agriculture. The sachems of Ninemissinuak tribes knew the boundaries of their territories, like the proverbial backs of their hands, of course. There's also evidence of the use of fish as fertilizer, indicating that the agriculture was intensive enough that it was causing fields to lose their fertility. The Ninemissinuak also fished extensively. Okay, let's talk a little about some race science theories that were commonplace among these early colonizers for whatever reason. We'll introduce some of this stuff by way of Morton, and it will also set the stage for when we cover similar ideas held by members of the German Pietist and Rosicrucian Society called the Chapter of Perfection, aka Monks on the Wissahickon, in the next installment. We've already introduced the revisionist histories of people like John Dee and Richard Hacklett, who repurposed 
Arthurian legends of the King of the Round Table traveling west prior to his death as justifications for the English colonization of the New World. We've also briefly touched on the possibly a historical belief of English settlers and early Americans in a Welsh settlement founded by Prince Madoc, who they claim gave rise to a quote-unquote white-skinned band of Native Americans. These legends were stoked by an explorer in the 19th century who claimed that a Mandan village in the Dakotas were the remnants of this earlier Welsh settlement. You might remember a quote to this effect from Peter Lavenda in episode 2, Historical Materia Ultima. Although I genuinely enjoy some of Lavenda's work and have found value in some of the connections that he's made, he's also kind of a stereotypical boomer crank, and I'm not quite sure what to make of his insistence on resuscitating or trying to legitimate some of these theories. All of that said, let's look at this quote from Moncal which also includes a sentence or two from Morton's New English Canaan. Quote, Morton's book included what might seem like inaccurate details about these Algonquins' world. He claimed, for example, that they drew on words from both Greek and Latin, and noted how often they integrated quote-unquote pan in their own words and place names, such as Pantnecket, possibly Pawtucket, and Mattapan, no doubt an ancient way of showing reverence for, quote, pan the great god of the heathens, end quote. While he acknowledged that there existed no traces of the worship of pan, he argued that the word's appearance in language revealed that, quote, it is most likely that the natives of this country are descended from people bred upon that part of the world, which is towards the Tropic of Cancer, for they do still retain the memory of some of the stars on that part of the celestial globe as the North Star, end quote. Morton was not alone among English colonists in noticing that the natives recognized specific stars and constellations and possessed a keen understanding of the phases of the moon. Morton dismissed others' claims that the Native Americans might have once been Tartars but he speculated that they could be the descendants of the ancient diaspora of the Trojans, though he perhaps made his observation in jest as a way to mock other European speculations about the origins of indigenous Americans. That's the end of that quote from Moncal. 
If Morton made this claim of Native American Trojan ancestry in jest, as Moncal speculates, then an example of the kinds of claims that he might have been poking fun at would be the belief among the German pietists of Pennsylvania that Native Americans were descended from one of the lost tribes of Israel, as we'll get to in the next section, a questionable belief that some folks continue to entertain today. That being said, do note these next few lines. As Morton compares the Ninemissanuach to the Irish, as we'll also see this theme among the German Rosicrucians. Quote, Morton, who could see how these Algonquins lived day to day, likened their houses to those of, quote, the wild Irish, end quote. They erected poles in a circle and bent the top of them to form an arch, then, then bound the tops together with walnut bark renowned for its durability. A hole at the top allowed smoke from their fires to escape. They covered the walls with mats consisting of reeds or sedge sewn together using needles fashioned from the leg bones of a crane and thread spun from hemp. Morton thought the men looked like, quote, Irish in their trousers, end quote. And another end quote of that section of text from Moncal's uh, The Trials of Thomas Morton. Morton attested to the generosity of the Algonquin, noting that they always shared their vittles with visitors and permitted them to sleep in their houses. Morton also described how they migrated with the seasons, Morton detailed how revels weren't foreign to his indigenous friends. Taking his revisionist histories of native ancestry into account, and his speculations that Native Americans were once worshippers of the pagan god Pan, if not any longer, the maypole rite that he hosted becomes that much more weighted with ritualistic significance. Morton observed the indigenous practice of burning the undergrowth of the New England forests twice a year so as to make hunting easier. Moncal asserts that modern scholars have confirmed the accuracy of much of Morton's writings on the New England landscape and the, quote, varied and productive economies the indigenous created across southern New England, end quote. Morton declared that the indigenous men were more handsome than the English, I can believe it, and that the women were just as modest as their English counterparts. He detailed the remarkable craftsmanship of indigenous clothing, described indigenous witchcraft and the importance of powas, who not only performed sleight of hand and spells, but also healed the afflicted. We've already discussed this a bit, but as previously mentioned, 
Winthrop the Younger would attempt to present himself as a power, so as to consolidate his power among the Pequot inhabitants of New London. So what do we make of these race science tendencies of Morton's and his syncretic attempts at looping native ideologies and origin stories in with biblical and even Greek mythology? Was it simply the very human tendency of looking for familiarity in a new and unfamiliar culture? Or did these attempts at cultural synthesis serve a more pernicious purpose? According to Moncal, bear with me on this block of text, because there's going to be a lot of quotes and end quotes, um, because Moncal repeatedly cites text straight from Morton's New English Canaan, possibly some other resources. All right, here we go. Big quote. He reported that the Ninemesinuak believed that, quote, God made one man and one woman, end quote, and he instructed them to, quote, live together and get children, kill deer, beasts, birds, fish, and fowl, and what they would at their pleasure, end quote. But, quote, their posterity was full of evil and made God so angry that he let in the sea upon them and drowned the greatest part of them that were naughty men. The Lord destroyed so, end quote. Those banished were consigned to, quote, Sonaconquam, who feeds upon them, pointing to the center of the earth, where they imagine is the habitation of the devil, end quote. While those who were spared in the flood, quote, increased the world, end quote. When these men and women died, they traveled westward, quote, to the house of Chiton, end quote. And a big, end quote. Maybe that's a good quotation system for us to use henceforth. The big quote and the big end quote indicates when a block of text begins and concludes. And then quote and end quote indicates intertextual quotations. So here we have Morton claiming that the Ninimus Anuak had diluvian myths very interesting. I don't know what it says exactly, but a lot of the intelligentsia of the colonial era appear to have believed in cultural diffusion and pre-Columbian transoceanic contact theories. Moncal also states that Morton claimed the Ninimus Anuak believed in the immortality of the soul. A quick aside, but I just flipped a couple pages forward, and I need to note the curious number of Inns of Court graduates who were involved in early expeditions and the colonization of the New World. 
Moncal notes how Bartholomew Gosnold of the Middle Temple, who knew the younger Hacklet, led a voyage to North America in 1602. A member of the noble family called the Brereton's was also on that trip. Speaking of Brereton's, I'm going to out myself as a, a sports ball fan here, but I believe one of their descendants currently plays for Blackburn in the English Championship. Let's quickly run down various colonial Inns of Court members that we've encountered. Hacklet, Gosnold, Thomas Morton, Winthrop Sr., Winthrop the Younger, and of course Francis Bacon, who, even though he didn't make it to the New World himself, was the father of the Royal Society and an acolyte of John Dee, who set English colonization in motion, to name a few. Alrighty, we've gotten ourselves turned around again. So, returning to Morton's New English Canaan, and the Puritans' attempts at suppressing its publication. They had good reason to, as the latter sections of the book were an extension of Morton and Gorgas's Quo Waranto legal case against the Puritan colonies and propagandized against them on a few different fronts. According to Moncal, Morton, quote, launched an assault, end quote, on the Puritan and Pilgrim religious practices and composed a long litany of their various misdeeds against their competitors, such as himself, and the local indigenous. Big quote. True to his earlier praise of the locals, Morton, time and again, described the Ninemissinuwak in a positive light and disparaged the misdeeds of the religious dissenters. One of Thomas Hunt's captives who had learned English was crucial in early discussions between Algonquins and colonists, he wrote. Another native who spoke English purportedly told a sachem that the English had stored plague in a hole and would release it, a claim sure to alarm those who had suffered the horrors of 1616 and 1619. Morton repeated the story of the desecration of Chicatawback's mother's grave which enraged the local sachem. He added that his informant had had a vision in which his mother begged him to do something about, quote, this thievish people, end quote, now resident in the region, revealing to his English readers his exasperation at how the pilgrims had violated Ninemissinuwak spiritual beliefs. Morton's version of history took a dark turn when he recounted a bloody assault that took place in 1623. 
Some of the pilgrims invited three Ninemissinuak men to join them in a feast at Wessagusset, and then stabbed them to death. The malefactors, so Morton wrote, had done this because they thought the Algonquins posed a threat to Weston. And a big end quote. According to Morton, after the incident, the Massachusetts henceforth called the English, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to pronounce this, but Wota Quenonge, a word which means stabbers or cutthroats. Morton repeatedly remarked how the English paled in comparison to the indigenous in matters of ethics and morality. In New English Canaan, Morton also recounts his capture and banishment, relitigating his supposed quote-unquote transgressions from the relative safety of his desk. Also, this is funny. Morton, never one to shy away from pettiness, had a Trump-esque nickname for Captain Miles Standish, his former captor, who he called Captain Shrimp. <laughs> That's pretty good. I'm sure that that pissed Captain Miles Standish off to no end. Anyways... You can see why the Puritans weren't keen on Morton's book hitting the printing presses, why they would try to suppress this multi-hundred-page tome filled with litanies of their most bloodthirsty acts and errors in governance. Oh, and another note. Beyond Morton's political alliance and work on behalf of Ferdinando Gorgas, to try and nullify the Puritans and Pilgrims' charters in the New World, Morton was also Anglican and allied with the Church of England, and hoped, through his propagandizing, that the more religiously liberal Anglican Church would take root in the New World. Considering Morton's crypto-paganism, it's interesting to think about how he found shelter in the Anglican Church. What this says exactly about the religious climate of the time, I'm unsure. In his relative religious and racial tolerance, Morton actually seems somewhat similar to John Winthrop the Younger. At the same time, there are clear distinctions. Even though Winthrop the Younger was an occultist and religiously tolerant in comparison to his father and the generation of Puritan elders that preceded him, he still was across from Morton in a pew on the other side of the Protestant aisle. A last quote from Moncal. Quote, he knew by 1637 that there was nothing more to contribute to the Quo Warranto case, and likely little he could do to influence policy makers or courts in London. Morton published the book because he believed that the Ninemis and Newark and English still might be able to coexist 
If only the English reading world would see the charade of the self-righteous dissenters for what he believed it was. A cover, imperfectly deployed, to justify their seizure of property that belonged in the hands of the Ninimus Nuwak or of Gorgas. In either case, Morton stood to profit. End quote. Why do I get the feeling that uh, if Morton or John Winthrop the Younger had been alive today, they'd be driving a Nissan Leaf with a coexist bumper sticker on the back? Sorry. Although the Puritans initially succeeded in suppressing New English Canaan, Morton finally got it published in 1637. Working with a Dutch printer named Jacob Frederick Stom in Amsterdam. Chocolatier? The following year, the Massachusetts General Court sent a petition to London refusing to return their charter. And then finally in 1639... Sir Ferdinando Gorgas received a patent to territory in modern-day Maine, which largely drew this power struggle between Gorgas and the Puritans to a close. Plus, Gorgas was already an old man by this time, and his energy for colonizing was starting to fade. He himself would never even make it to the New World. In 1643, Morton, who was also graying, returned to New England and was promptly thrown in jail. The rakish grand adventure of Morton's life would end in infamy and disappointment further evidence of the Puritan power structure's stranglehold on colonial affairs at that moment. Following his imprisonment, Morton was exiled to his longtime benefactor's territory in Maine in 1644, and two or three years later, he died in Acomenticus. I don't know how to pronounce that. Acomenticus. Epilogue. The love-hate infatuation with Morden among New England elite would continue past Thomas Jefferson, multiple generations of the Adams family, and Hawthorne, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow included Morden's relationship with Christopher Gardiner in a verse in 1880. Speaking of which, it would be worthwhile to look into Morton's relationships with the gardeners, as I don't remember seeing anything else about this. But evidently he knew one of them, and if Christopher Gardiner is of the famous New York gentry family that later purchased Gardiner's Island, this connects Morton to Captain Kidd by one or two degrees. In the 20th century, Morton's saga was adopted by Wiccans and Neo-Pagans. He was depicted as an eco-warrior, 
and even served as the namesake of, quote, the Thomas Morton Alliance, a pagan-leaning countercultural group, end quote. As Moncal notes, the New York Times published a long article on the 300th anniversary of the founding of the Massachusetts Bay Colony that claimed, quote, the Elizabethan tradition in New England died with Morton, end quote. The poets, William Carlos Williams and Robert Lowell, have both found inspiration in the saga of Thomas Morton. I gotta point out, Robert Lowell's one-act play from 1965, which is titled Endicott and the Red Cross. That's a curious name, wouldn't you say? Talk about some Rosicrucian symbolism there. As we've previously noted in other installments, Dame Frances Yates argues that Edmund Spencer's Red Cross Knight is Rosicrucian coded, and it's certainly not a stretch to see Rosicrucian symbolism in the words Red Cross sans any Spencerian connotations. Although I haven't read much of Robert Lowell's poetry or writing, I know enough to know that he uses mythic imagery. Oh, evidently Lowell used the same title for his play as another Hawthorne short story, also called Endicott and the Red Cross, if it wasn't already apparent. Robert Lowell is descended from the Boston Brahmin Lowell Textile Dynasty, whose lineage traces back to the Mayflower. So yeah, very curious. And from what I can tell, based on a millisecond-long glance at what looks like someone's graduate thesis and Lowell's wiki, it appears that Lowell reimagined Hawthorne's earlier short story, but remixed it with The Maypole at Marymount. Based on the abstract of this paper I peeked at, it looks like Lowell, although Catholic himself, was curious about these occulted Protestant and pansific ideas of bringing about a worldly eschaton, and that Lowell, defying his Puritan heritage, rebelled by identifying Morton as the, quote, moral center, end quote, of that colonial moment, to use Moncal's wording. Here's quoting from that paper. Quote, Lowell is demonstrably critical of a reform movement embodied in Puritanism, which imposed an uncompromising order in much the same way the English government withheld religious freedom from dissenters. The theme of Endicott and the Red Cross best illustrates Lowell's disrespect for the unyielding nature of revolutionary movements. This play reveals in the clearest way what is Lowell's primary concern throughout the Old Glory. 
For now that his fiery Catholic vision of apocalypse has expired, he views self-convinced factionalism as the foremost threat to the earthly city of man. Indecisive in so many books of poetry as to the course of political action which should rightly be taken by the idealist, Lowell in these plays supplies an additional commentary on the problem of public involvement in an age that defies commitment to causes or belief in ideals. I fucking hate this. <laughs> Specifically, the poet expresses again his disheartening revelation that idealism is often naive, and impetuous, guilty, or guilty of creating political untruths at least as often as it is capable of restoring a warped society to a position of strength. And that's the end of that quote from the paper about Lowell's collection, The Old Glory. Hmm. Who would have thought that Lowell a descendant of one of the most wealthy and powerful industrial dynasties in the United States, would poo-poo revolutionary movements. Who would have thunk? We might just have to return to this play, especially when we do a more detailed takedown of the Lowells later on, but this will have to suffice for now. One last writer who was arguably Morton Pilled, was Philip Roth, whose protagonist, David Kopesh, or Kopesh, in The Dying Animal, is obsessed with Morton. A final quote, I mean it, final, from Moncal, that also quotes Roth. All right, can use my big quote again here. Big quote, to Roth, Morton exemplified perpetual types. Quote, He's a kind of forest creature out of as you like it, end quote. Kopesh reports, quote, A wild demon out of a midsummer night's dream. Shakespeare is Morton's rock and roll, end quote. Roth, like Lowell, picked up the eager, transgressive sexuality of Mare Mount. For Roth's character, Morton had initiated an anti-authoritarian strain in American popular culture that would not resurface until Henry Miller. Quote, The clash between Plymouth and Mary Mount, between Bradford and Morton, between rule and misrule, end quote. Kopesh announces as he depicts the cultural tsunami that convulsed the nation in the 1960s. Quote, the colonial harbinger of the national upheaval 330-odd years later, when Morton's America was born at last, Miscegenation and all. End quote. Kopesh believes that Morton's likeness should be carved onto Mount Rushmore because his 17th century hero laid the foundations for a sexual revolution that enabled a serial predator like him 
to sleep with students as long as he never broke his own rule that they could not consummate their relationship until he had recorded their grade for the semester. Big end quote. All right, so this last assimilation of the Morton story by Philip Roth is interesting, I think, as it hints at the dichotomy between permissible and impermissible forms of transgression and rebellion, and the American ruling elite and capitalist power structures frequent subversion of revolutionary movements and moments through cultural and sexual means. Speaking of which, on May 1st, 2011, Governor Deval Patrick issued a proclamation declaring Thomas Morton Day. Hey, you, yeah, you with the earbuds. Don't go anywhere. All you gotta do is take the cassette out and flip it over to its other side. I know it's an arcane and analog analogy, but what I mean to say is, I got so obsessed with doing research into William Pynchon and his trade network and doing analysis of the Rosicrucian imagery in Thomas Pynchon's short story, Under the Rose, that it became apparent that I was going to have to split this pod episode like a log and lop off half of it. But we're releasing them simultaneously. So I'm going to do the whole spiel now and... Whenever you want, you can move on over to the next episode. If you enjoy our freewheeling investigations and this secret history of Massachusetts, please like, rate, and review the show so that other unsuspecting listeners might discover the mythic symbolism and sympathetic magic of the Maypole Rite, our thorough mapping of the Rosicrucian slavery-pushing alchemists of New England, the final days of the saga of Thomas Morton, and the story of Uncas's counter-revolutionary strategic wifing up to build power during the colonial power struggle in Massachusetts and Connecticut. Oh yeah, and I'm also supposed to practice the Patreon bit too, even though it isn't live yet. But this way y'all at least know that there's going to be a Patreon, and you can prime yourselves to subscribe when the time comes. If you've got a hankering for even more para-power mapping, make sure to subscribe on Patreon so that I can find the time to produce the tons of premium content, synchronous deep dives, and parapolitical power maps planned for future episodes. Thanks for listening. Stay critical, critters. Hasta luego.